you probably wouldn't think of a probation agency that goes after park grants to the tune of $6 million to rebuild parks within the communities that are so disenfranchised. But my agency has done that and we continue to do that. Welcome back to Voir Dear from the Program in Criminal Justice Policy and Management at Harvard Kennedy School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today we're going to be talking about an often ignored and not so sexy part of the criminal legal system, probation. Probation and parole and community supervision in general have exploded over the last few decades. We have 2.2 million people incarcerated, but we have 4.5 million people under community supervision in this country. And I have to say, When I started working in the criminal legal system and there were probation officers involved in so many of my cases and I kept saying, who are these people? What is their background? Why do they have so much discretion and so much credibility with the courts? They are a place that merit far more interrogation than they're currently getting and certainly there is room for improvement. So I'm excited to bring to you today a conversation about progressive probation. Again, today you're going to be hearing some different voices than my own. You're going to hear from Professor Sandra Susan Smith and Professor Christopher Winship a little bit later on in the conversation. And they'll be talking to Wendy Still, who's the Chief Probation Officer of Alameda County and formerly San Francisco. So I bring you that conversation. Good afternoon, everyone. I am so excited to be able to introduce you to Wendy Still, Chief Probation Officer of the Alameda County Probation Department and a friend. Wendy and I first met each other when we were both uh, members of the executive session on community corrections. And I became a big fan of Wendy the person and of the things that she was doing at the time in San Francisco's probation department. So Wendy, thank you for agreeing to do this with us. Thank you very much, Professor Smith. Would you mind sharing what issues you faced when you took on the role, how you sought to address these issues, what changes took place on the ground so that you could realize your vision and what this meant in terms of outcomes for your probationers and parolees? Yes, I'd be happy to. And maybe spending a minute on what I found when I walked in the door, you know, which was really pretty shocking to me. It was back in the 1980s, Martinson eliminated through his Nothing Works, which we now know is totally erroneous research that he did that that really changed the trajectory of the whole criminal justice system and led to the unfortunate get tough on crime era. What that meant to probation, which is community supervision, is the legislature in California wiped out, and we're not unlike all other states, the probation subsidies and the money for probation, because if nothing works, why would we invest in it? And that's where they took that money then and invested in incarceration, which you know just had such a negative effect that we all know and that we've seen. So walking into San Francisco probation, what I found was an underfunded agency, a lack of training for the staff, a lack of resources for the clients under supervision or returning home from state prison. And in addition to that, a a culture that existed because of all of those lack of, not bad people, right? But because of lack of the understanding of what evidence-based practice is, what is trauma, how does that impact, you know, brain development and all of that, just an agency that was in dire straits. And I was fortunate that the, the county was really looking for change within its probation system. 
I think if I would have left the prison system and I would have went into another county that was more conservative, that I would have been unhappy and probably failed to make as, as much uh, movement and success that we had in San Francisco. It was because of the partnerships, the collaboration, not only with the public safety partners and the court, but also the community-based organizations and the social service agencies. That's what I found walking in the door that this, you know, really a uh, lack of resources, lack of understanding. And so I had to not only rebuild the agency through conversations such as with Mayor Newsom at the time, do you want to spend $10 a day on community supervision and make an investment in success? Or do you want to spend $120 a day at that time? Now it's far above that in failure, which is what jails are, and certainly a lot more costly in the prison environment. And also when, when I talked about public safety, I talked about it. It's not about locking people up. People are coming home. It's about really changing lives and providing the opportunity for that life change. And so the things that, that I did walking in the door is I did a, a complete review of the department. We created a strategic plan. We got staff involved. We provided significant amounts of training to staff. We really worked hard on our partnerships. You know, one of my visions was to create a one-stop for the individuals that were coming home from prison, because that's a barrier for the population, for them to have to go to all these different locations to try and receive these service, employment training, batter intervention program, family reunification, education. So it was really bringing all these resources to one location. So again, it was a one-stop shop. That was something I worked really hard on and it has been very successful. So let me ask you, you put in place or you create a, a strategic plan, you get staff involved, there's training involved, you create this one-stop system, but you still have the employees from the, the prior era. It's hard for me to imagine that everybody was like, great, let's do this. So can you tell me how your employees, your personnel responded to the, the major changes you were trying to make, both in terms of culture, but also in terms of structure of this, this, this agency? Yes. And it's really interesting. The experience repeated itself when I came to Alameda, but that was kind of a good training ground to do, you know, a total top to bottom transformation. And no, you're right. You know, there was resistance from some employees for a variety of reasons, but very fortunately, I was able to hire about 50% of my workforce, which made a big difference. And we were able to, you know, through our testing process, really focus on the kind of skills. We weren't just looking for those that had police or law enforcement or anything like that experience, we were really looking for those that, that had social service backgrounds to also business and other types so that we brought a different paradigm in and married that with those that were already there and experienced. And I think one thing that, that I did is, is really communicated with the staff where we were at, where we were going, unwavering in that vision was always very clear. And we redid our mission, vision, and values and constantly referred to that. We had to increase the knowledge of our supervisors, right? So that they could supervise and provide that, gu that guidance and mentorship to their staff. And so we created a 18 month program 
so we can help bring them along. And I think that also helped change the culture too, as we weren't leaving those that were there behind, we were including them. And also in the development of the strategic plan, you know, the voices throughout the department were heard in that process. So again, they weren't left behind or seen as the old guard versus the new, the new staff. So you mentioned great results. How about I give you an opportunity to tell us about those great results in San Francisco before we move right. across the, the Bay Bridge to Alameda County? Sure. You know, I, what I will say is that the 50,000 uh, feet is that we did several new things, you know, that was kind of unheard of at the time. When, when I got there, I really started pursuing funding, you know, foundation funding, also federal funding and grants and that for these new ideas that I had. My goal was I knew we needed to shorten probation terms because there was no science behind these long three-year, five-year or, or longer. So we applied for a justice reinvestment grant and we got it. And we had three different components to it. One was pretrial. One was also the looking at the length of probation terms. And through the data collection and that effort, what we found is that the, the long sentences had no relationship to success or failure. Because if someone was going to fail by the 18th month, they have failed, right? And really, realistically, within the first 60 days, a significant percentage of them than at the 12 month and the 18 month. So it took me from 2011 up until just this year when the new legislation was passed, which actually shortened probation terms to basically get that enacted. For misdemeanors, it was a year sentence with no victim crimes and for felony supervision with no serious or violent two years, much different than the three to five years. And so what the results were in while I was in San Francisco to answer that question, we were able to reduce those under supervision by about 50%. There was doom and gloom forecast that, oh, the jail's population would swell. And I said, no, 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 no. If we, if we establish all these diversionary programs and a pre-entry court, which was different than a re-entry court, Reentry court is set up for those coming home from prison to re-enter and to provide oversight. I wanted to create, and I did, a pre-entry court, which prevented very serious probation violators from going to state prison from 10 to 13 plus year terms. This was like their one stop, last stop opportunity, and it was wildly successful. But what they needed is they needed to have smaller caseload sizes, court intervention, as well as the wraparound services, and we proved that it worked. And so after five years in, in all those great experiences, I had decided to retire. And then I got a call, interestingly enough, from the advocates that said, would you please come to Alameda and do what you did in San Francisco? I came in 2016. And we've had a 55% reduction in our adults under supervision. So let me ask you one question about these, these numbers. As a result of having these major reductions, have you seen any upticks in crime? Is there any crime associated with uh, reducing your caseloads as much as you have? 
I would say we've had, we've also, to be totally transparent, we've also had some law changes, Prop 47, right, which is the decriminalization of marijuana. We've had Prop 57, which basically that has to do with how youths are charged. Are they charged with youth or adults? And I, w- I would say really where we've seen the uptick in crime pre-COVID, because COVID I'll talk about as a different situation, where there had been an increase was property crime. You know, and there's never been a a true nexus, but that was really the only increase. We did not see an increase in violent crime. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in now in a COVID world, we have seen an increase in homicides, not in overall violent crime or robberies of that, but it's really been an increase in our county alone of homicides. Now, we don't attribute that at all to any of these reforms. In my mind, there are so many aspects of COVID that actually, you know, feed into that, including the youth. The youth are not in school now. I think that those are real contributors, but I don't think it's these, these criminal justice policies. There's nothing, no evidence that we have to substantiate that. Okay, thank you very much for that. So I have a couple of questions that I want to ask, but first I'd like you to tell us more about what you've done in Alameda County, both in terms of adult and juvenile fines and fees. There's also the question of phone charges. There are a whole host of reforms that you put into place to unburden people who've had contact with probation in Alameda County. Yeah, we have actually done some really pretty neat things. There are so many barriers and these fees that are charged is just one more barrier that shackles these disadvantaged individuals, people of color, you know, from these communities that haven't been invested in, here is one more fee, one more barrier, one more burden that we're putting on them. And so we we eliminated the probation supervision fees. Also in the sheriffs, they had work details, so to speak, but there was an astronomical cost to for someone that could participate in a work a weekend work detail rather than having to go to jail. So because they didn't have the money to, to pay those fees, they'd have to go to jail. So we eliminated that fee and we eliminated some of the small public defender fees. Also the juvenile fees. And I just received approval from our public protection committee to take to the full board for approval, the elimination of payphone charges. We know how important family reunification is how important that relationship is to rehabilitation, reunification and such. And so we did an analysis of what the cost was to do that and took it to public protection. And not only did I take elimination going forward phone fees, also because of COVID last year, the authority to reimburse the families that had paid those fees, any fees that we had collected. So a a couple of questions, which are probably perhaps a bit sensitive for probation chief, but it's it's to be understood in the current context of both defunding various criminal um, or penal system agencies, but also in the context of discussions about how it is that it's not unusual for penal agencies to contract out with for-profit organizations to help with the process of monitoring clients, if we would call them that. So the, the first question is with regards to the defund movement. I think a reasonable argument that could be made is that instead of investing on the back end in communities in this way, the kinds of resources that a probation department might receive and use in this way could actually be invested on the front end in communities that are already struggling. And if they have those resources, perhaps the need 
for a probation department would be much lessened. Have you been faced with these kinds of questions about, about the probation department as being one of the agencies that we might consider how we're funding and perhaps divert resources so that they impact communities directly, immediately, and not at the back end after people have already had contact with the penal system? Yeah, I, I think that it really, that kind of a discussion really varies state to state. Even within California, with the 58 different counties, it really varies county to county, right? In San, in San Francisco, very progressive, but Alameda, very progressive. And the short answer is yes. Does the question come up, you know, is probation one of those agencies that we should consider as defunding as part of it? But if you look at then, you know, what the role of probation is, that's where it depends upon how a probation department provides services to their clients. And language does matter. You know, we talk about our clients as clients. And I see that as we have a dual role. You know, we have a rehabilitation role, which is a social service type role. And we have a role as law enforcement. Our focus in my agencies that I'm at is in that role of rehabilitation. But it's, it's in prevention also, too. And I think that's what, you know, the community isn't as aware of as it should. But this could vary, you know, agency to agency, state to state. And, and again, we invest, you know, $25 million a year into community-based services, community-based organizations, building them up. You probably wouldn't think of a probation agency that goes after park grants to the tune of $6 million to rebuild parks within the communities that are so disenfranchised so that the, the community has a meeting place and it's part of rebuilding the community. But my agency has done that and we continue to do that, reaching out for community type grants and partnerships. Also a partnership with local faith-based organization to build housing and also delinquency prevention. That's really to get to your point too, is that in the last couple of years, we've invested $13 million in delinquency prevention. And I think what our numbers show as an example, going from about 1900 down to 227, right? We don't want to have people under our supervision, whether they be youth or adults, unless they need help. We give money out to the community to do that. And we have a whole delinquency prevention network throughout our entire county where we make investments. We act as the agency to funnel money out into the community-based organizations because in reality, someone has to be accountable for the vast amounts of money that are millions of dollars, in some cases, tens of millions that are being invested. And so people don't really understand what probation is all about and how we are really that neutral party. We provide recommendations to the court. We provide access to services in terms of food card, clothing cards. You know, we even, we even provide rental assistance in the event that someone has not been able to pay their rent so that they don't lose their home. And we also contract this year, we'll spend over $10 million through probation to housing for our reentry or justice involved population. So I think there's really a lack of understanding of what probation does, but I don't also want to leave the impression that I think Alameda County is the norm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that makes sense. And I, I certainly have to say that I appreciate that services are getting funneled into communities. But it still strikes me that you're doing this because it's not already being done. And it seems odd to have 
the probation department <laughs> fixing up parks or providing housing, et cetera. This, is, this seems like the activities that another part of government should be taking part in. But instead, we have a, a penal agency saying we're going to give, going into particular neighborhoods or communities and saying we're going to give you housing, we're going to give you mental health services, we're going to give you X, Y, and Z. It, the, there's something that is odd about getting those kinds of resources from a penal system. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, I think that as a county, you know, we have agencies that are responsible for doing that. That is their role. They have huge, vast amounts of money to provide housing services. We have a behavioral health agency and we partner with them also. Some of our housing dollars we pass through to our housing development authority. Some of it we contract directly for, for, for our clients. We also partner, of course, with our health and human services agency and our behavioral health. And we funnel dollars to them to provide or contract directly. So we are working with those partners and they are providing services. What we're doing also, though, is taking into account the unique needs of our forensic population. And we are making easy access or creating programs for them that will work when these other systems have failed them. Mm -hmm. But I will be the first one to say that the lack of investment in these communities, and they are communities of color, if you look where our population comes from, the lack of front-end investment in these communities and in the schools and you know, school failures, and I'm not trying to be critical of that, but, but you know, I, I look at these cases that come to me with very serious charges. And I took our top 18 and looked at their educational records from kindergarten all the way through when they reached us. And from the first grade, there were signs, you know, Fs, 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 you know, one youth, 32 Fs, but had progressed all the way to the 10th grade without any kind of intervention. And so we are also partnering with other agencies on violence prevention and, and all of that stuff. But I'll be the first one to say, we're investing in failure when we're investing in jails and prisons. What we need to do to invest in success is to invest in that very front end. But it doesn't mean that we don't need that community supervision or that community support for those that have, you know, for whatever reason, ended up in the justice system. And but but one of the things that I see real danger on the horizon, this is Wendy Still's personal opinion, right, is that now reentry is really the popular thing and it's the buzzword. And you have all these different agencies that want to get into it and really in my mind want to get their hands on the money. And maybe they think that they want to do it, but they're tripping over each other and, and, and it's really inefficient. Where you have the police, what their responsibility is, the sheriff, what their role is, the district attorney, what their role is, the court, what their role is. Now everybody wants to get into the reentry world. And that is inefficient. And we're just going to waste vast amounts of money. And what I will say also about our forensic population, for whatever the reason, is that, you know, these other larger agency, you know, that is responsible for homelessness or health or, or behavioral health, that's what their focus is. Our population, you know, I don't want to say that they're biased against that because that wouldn't be fair to agencies, but we're completely focused at trying to help this population. Now, if you're in a law enforcement community supervision agency, right, 
where their mindset and culture is to nail them, nail them and jail them, then, then I would say that's the agency that you want to look at defunding. I'm going to turn the, the mic over to Chris Winship, who might have a few questions for you. Chris. Sure. So Wendy, I'm wondering if we can get you to move to Massachusetts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're kind of progressive here. Maybe there's some opportunity for some real change. So one of the things I thought was really interesting was how much of your experience was outside of probation. I just wondered sort of how, how did you get into this? Well, first start, you know, I have understanding from the criminal justice probation system from a different view. I was a 12-year-old runaway. And I was, you know, I found myself in juvenile detention in Sacramento for a short period of time, but enough to make a lasting impression. And so, but my background really is business. I found myself in, in the state prison system going up the hierarchy. That's where I spent 10 years working in a prison, becoming very familiar with both male, female, high security, low security, inmates' needs, what their needs are where they're coming home. And I found myself, and this was a defining moment for me, was that I was the deputy chief warden at Solano looking out over my office. We had four yards. There were 5,000 men on these yards, overcrowded, about, I don't know, 160%, 150%. And these there were families. There were uh, uncles and brothers and cousins, and it was just heartbreaking. And so that's where, that's where my reform work really started. And so I got to a point in my career where I wanted to prevent people from uh, going to prison. I was a reformer inside the prison system. I think it's just something inherent within my DNA. And then I had an opportunity. I got a phone call to say, hey, why don't you come to San Francisco and you know, apply for our chief probation officer? I had such a rehabilitative and evidence-based background plus my all of my education that they thought it would be a really good fit. And so that's how I actually got to probation in the first place. And my husband had passed away. If it had been a year earlier, I'd have said no because of family commitments. And it was just a good timing for me, but it really came from the place of, I wanted to prevent people from going to prison rather than trying to rehabilitate them once they got there. Great. So Rob's experience uh, has helped make you very successful. So you're a woman in a world that's dominantly uh, male. Did, is it an advantage or was it a, a hindrance or how did, how did being a woman fit into all this? Right. I, I will tell you in the prison system, remind you, you know, I was in the prison system beginning in the eighties, right? And it was not very comfortable to be a reformer at heart. And I didn't even know that's who I was or what I was, but I was always asking questions, always wanting to make improvements, you know. And, and then when I got into real leadership roles, the, the role that was just so important to me was taking on the voice for the female inmates, being the first associate director of female offender programs. We eliminated the shackling of pregnant inmates before any other system did that. We basically eliminated cross-gender path searching before any other. I wrote Penal Code 3430, which was about providing gender responsive services to women. And that was not very popular within the prison system. But anyways, so that was a very different experience through some very different times. And coming out into probation, 63% of the peace officers in my agencies are women. And statewide within California, 51% of the peace officers are women. 
And if you also look at the diversity within my agency, the majority of my population, again, you know, from communities of color are Black and African American. Those are the, the youth and the adults. Well, the actual staff that I supervise are almost 53% African American and uh, Hispanic, Latino, 20%, white, roughly 14.5%, and Asian Pacific Islander, about Five percent, But anyways, I think that's where probation really differs from traditional law enforcement. We have a more balanced workforce, at least in California, we certainly do. And I think that makes a big difference in the culture of the agency. I can say more about because as you know, there's this longstanding debate whether police departments need to be more balanced. And empirical evidence is kind of mixed on that. So how does it change the culture? It changed the culture because I think uh, women have different skill sets than men. And it's not that one is better than the other. I, I think that, and I, this is from over 40 years experience of working in various correctional environments with men and women. Men, to be, men tend to be more authoritative in nature, more directing in nature, where the women tend to be, and again, these are vast generalizations, so not everyone is this way, tend to use more of their listening skills. And also, uh, it's easier for them to collaborate. And I think that those, those skill sets together make a great team, you know, but you certainly have some men that have those listening skill sets and that as well as women authoritative. But I think that that's really the vast difference in my mind. And that's why, and I think also women go first, their go-to is tend to try and de-escalate situations, right? It's kind of just a natural skill that they have. So that's why I truly believed in a balanced situation. And anyone that thinks that, you know, from a law enforcement perspective, you got to have a lot of men, you got to have big brawn and all of that. That's not what saves the day. As we know, so many of the individuals that come into contact with law enforcement have mental health issues. And so that's where the de-escalation skills, ability to listen, to really talk down are really important. So I definitely believe in a balanced workforce. So Wendy, Chief Still, thank you so much for visiting us and sharing with us what it is that you've been doing in the Bay Area, first in San Francisco as Chief and then on to Alameda County. I, for one, feel grateful that you have been in these roles and have made the changes that you've made, which I do think has has had to have felt to unburden so many families that have had contact with the penal system and then had to run through probation. But it looks like you've gone well beyond that in terms of the investments that you've made in these communities. Thank you so much for what you've done and the way that you've been using your resources. You really are a kind of uh, guide about how, how one would go about this. So really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Smith and also Professor Winship for having me here today. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's it for this episode. Again, this has been Vordier from the Harvard Kennedy School Program in Criminal Justice Policy and Management. I want to thank Brian Welch for his support of the podcast and Poddington Bear for composing our theme.